Today we have a standalone uh, lesson. Uh, we should start a new series two weeks from uh, today. Next week is the uh, last Sunday of the month, so we will uh, talk about chapter five of trusting God. And then two weeks from today we'll start a new series. Today is just a standalone uh, lesson, and I want us to consider private ownership. Why do we want? Why, why do I want us to? talk about that. Because I want us to think about everything from a biblical perspective. Why is it uh, that uh, we think communism is wrong or, or uh, a very, very strong socialism is wrong? Not because we are fans of Joseph McCarthy or because we thought Reagan was the best thing in the world. We might think that. Some of you might think that. But that's not the reason why we uh, support private ownership. We support private ownership because the Bible teaches private ownership. And so, as, as though this, this subject is important, and I hope you, you pay attention, this is another attempt, which uh, I think the theme of my ministry is to always remind us of the sufficiency of the Scriptures, how it's sufficient for everything concerning faith and practice, and how all of our thinking should be based on the Scriptures. So even political and economical systems, how you think about them, should be enlightened by the scriptures. Now, the scriptures don't necessarily teach a very particular economic uh, system as a whole or a government system as a whole for the civil realm, but uh, they do give us principles that we should follow there. And I would like for us to start with Deuteronomy chapter 19. If you're able to turn there in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 19. And then look at verse 14. You are, so verse 14 of Deuteronomy 19 says, You shall not remove your neighbor's landmark, which the men of old have set in your inheritance, which you will inherit it in the land that the Lord your God is given you to possess. Now, it seems to be a random kind of text to, to speak on this subject, but uh, Lord willing, I'll show you how this applies or teaches private ownership. So I want to show you that the Bible presupposes, teaches, and regulates private ownership, and especially private ownership of the means of production. And that's primarily shown in the ownership of land. Remember that in an agrarian society, the, the main means of production is not a factory, it's not an office, but it's land that produces uh, what you eat and what you sell and commerce and so on. So this is not necessarily an uh, endorsement of capitalism as it's found today, but it is an attempt to help us think about all areas of life in light of the scriptures. In other words that the Bible teaches private ownership, therefore we hold to that belief. Now, I think most of us are familiar with the different teachings, or at least have a glimpse of different teach teachings on political science or political theory or government 
theory. We've seen things done. Um, and there's no silver bullet. Now, oh, if you follow this man or that man or that, this teaching, that teaching, you're going to have the perfect government. But if you follow the principles of the scriptures, you're going to have the best possible government. Always understanding that um, government always is going to be flawed because sinful people will be involved in government. And the government was never meant to be a savior. And, the, and that's the problem we have in our society today, at least in the United States, and actually in third world countries, developing countries, the government is looked upon as the thing that's going to solve all problems and the thing that has the duty to rescue us from everything. And that's never been uh, the case in the scriptures and in history as well. Every time that people, whatever people, look to the government as a savior, um, bad things happened um, in, in that society. All right, so what does this verse mean? This is not a command to preserve statues or flags or monuments. This is not what this is talking about. So don't quote this verse when somebody wants to take a statue of, that you like down or something like that from the public uh, square. This is not what this verse means. This is a command not to mess with boundary lines of other people's properties. When Moses says, you shall not remove your labor's landmark, exactly that, the mark that marks his land. That, that you're, not, what you're not, Chad is not you know, grabbing his stake and moving five to ten feet into Adam's property and claiming that now as his property. That's, this is what this verse is forbidding because that's not Chad's property, it's Adam's property. And in just saying that, what is this verse teaching? That Chad owns a piece of land that's not Adam's, and that Adam owns a piece of land that's not Chad's, and to take from one or the other is stealing. And you cannot steal what doesn't belong to somebody else. You can steal from Chad if the thing doesn't belong to Chad to begin with. So the idea is that you are not to move your neighbor's fence in order to increase your property. In the case of the promised land, God is the one who set up those lines. Remember that, that each tribe got their own property, and then within the tribe, they were able to decide who gets what by the size of clans or whatever. And, but the, the actual tribe was set by the Lord, and to move that is to show discontent, discontentment with what God had given to you. So it would be a, a, a direct attack on God if you did that. Now, beyond this passage, uh, this idea of moving boundary lines is mentioned five other times in the Bible. Two of them in the context of being the object of God's curse for moving that line. So the idea of messing with other people's property is, is worthy of God's cursing you. And I'm just bringing that up because that shows how important that idea is to God. Okay? Um, Deuteronomy 27, 17. Cursed is the one who moves the neighbor's landmark, and all the people shall say, Amen. So that's, 
Deuteronomy 27 is describing all the curses that uh, are going to happen if you're unfaithful to God's covenantal promises and so on. And this is one of them that's brought up. Uh, if you look at those two chapters, uh, the, a couple of tribes are standing on, supposed to stand on, on the hills, and the rest of Israel is supposed to walk through the valley. And one side, the, tri- the tribes are uh, saying God's blessings upon the people. The other side, the tribes are saying God's curses upon the people if they break uh, God's covenant. And this is one of them, that the idea of um, taking somebody else's property is... Uh, you know, worthy of God's curses. Hosea, the prophet, mentions that when it says, The princes of Judah are like those who remove a landmark. I'll pour out my wrath on them like water. When the government doesn't respect private ownership, when the government is the one moving the landmarks, right? when the government is the one taking from some, keeping to, him, to itself, or taking from some and giving to others, it's the object of God's curse. Two other times, this same the, this idea of moving land uh, is found in the Bible as just a restatement of Deuteronomy. And both of them are in, in Proverbs, where we read the same thing. Do not remove the ancient landmarks which your fathers have set. And then in Proverbs 23, do not remove the ancient landmarks nor enter the fields of the fatherless. Uh, which the Proverbs now, the spin it's putting it, don't take advantage of the weaker people. And to take their property. Don't do that. That's not something that God's covenant people will do, as Proverbs is a covenant document to God's covenant people. So that's four of them. And the fifth one is a reference to the fact that God should punish those who move boundary lines. And it's the book of Job, where it says, some remove landmarks, they seize flocks violently and feed on them. And as the passage continues, it says God should punish them for doing that. All these passages presupposes that land is owned by individuals who are not the state. Do you understand what the idea of presupposing is? They assume that this is common knowledge. They assume that everybody knows that land is to be owned by the individual and not by the state. Do you all understand that? The idea of presupposition? So all these are already regulating something that's already true, that private ownership is what God has instituted, um, at least for his people. But we can, um, I think, um, apply that to not just Christians, but to humanity in general. Any questions before we continue? Andrew? I don't know if this is where you're going, but would this speak to to eminent laws uh, about eminent domain? I don't think the scriptures forbid that. Um, there is examples of that in the scriptures. Uh, the, if, you're, if you're reading the Bible through, you recently read the story of Joseph in Genesis, where he devises a way for the government to buy the land of people. So the idea of, of government owning land is not forbidden. Is the idea that only the government can own land is what's forbidden, or that that's the primary way that land should be owned. But the fact that government may, uh, in the public interest, do things uh, uh, with land and property, I don't think the scriptures forbid that. 
We see that a little bit in the civil laws in the Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy where uh, there, as much as we hate those, especially at this, life, at this stage of our church life, building codes are not unbiblical. You know, the, 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 the Deuteronomy says that uh, the, the, the local government is in charge of making sure that the houses that have flat rooftops that people stay on top have parapets or you know, guardrails so that people don't fall off. So I think that all that kind of says that imminent domain is not necessarily a bad doctrine, but is awfully misused. Does it make sense? So it's not the thing itself that's wrong, but how it's used. Uh, in University Place, uh, the Tacoma Church has a property that goes to all the way from, if you're familiar with 67th Avenue to Bridgeport Avenue. It's 15 acres. And the city of UP put a vote, put it to a vote whether the citizens of UP want them to put a um, planter in the middle of Bridgeport, you know, widen Bridgeport, put a planter, so that it would be more difficult to turn left. It w- the citizens of UP overwhelmingly voted against it. So obviously the city of UP said, well, we'll do it anyway. And they used eminent domain to take property of people so they could put flowers in the middle of Bridgeport. That's clearly an abuse of the idea of imminent domain, right? But the whole uh, interstate system would not exist without the idea of imminent domain. So I think there's a bit of a difference there, how those things are applied. Does it make sense? Okay. Jim. What about adverse possession? I don't know what that is. So if, if you, uh, if, if there's... I'm adverse to you possessing my stuff. Is that... Is that <laughs> so adverse possession would state that if, if uh, somebody thinks that their property line is here mm-hmm. and they've established a fence on that property and it comes to light later on, five or year, more years later on, that, oh, no, that's not the case, that's your neighbor's property, your line is right here, you can file for adverse possession because you have occupied that property for a certain number of years uh, before it was discovered. Yeah, so the, at least in the promised land, the, the scripture will be against that, right? So... Having said that, I think holding of land just with the strict purpose of speculation is not necessarily a biblical thought. To hold land that's sitting there with no purpose, nobody can use, nobody can do anything with it, and you're going to hold that for 30, 40, 50 years and leave the land unproductive with nothing going on there, I don't know if that's the best use of the land according to the scriptures. Uh, or the idea of stewarding, that's the, 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 you're stewarding that property yeah, well either. possession usually applies to two neighbors right. side by side, right. and they're both living yeah. on the property. Yeah. Sonia, any, any questions about the things we have talked? Because there's a ton of things we haven't talked. So anything about the things we have talked so far? Sonia? Okay, so we haven't talked about that. So that's... Uh, <laughs> that's uh, all right, so we'll continue here. <clears throat> so there are other. Pa- so these passages presuppose that land is owned by individuals who are not the state. Other passages regulate private ownership. So if the if they regulate the thing, it means that the thing is proper. Does it make sense? So if they say this is how you own your land, again the presupposition is that you own your land. Can you think of a major? Passage, even if you don't know the address, it talks about regulating 
private property? Is it the top 10? <laughs> Come on, people. You're sinking too deeply. This, this top ten, ten commandments. Do not steal. Come on, people. You deeply dis. No, so guys. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the eighth commandment. Do not steal. Again, stealing presupposes that you don't own the thing somebody else owns, and it's primarily don't steal from your neighbor. Is not don't steal from the government, right? Um, the ninth, the tenth commandment, is also. It also presupposes private. Ownership. So, uh, just a quote from Deuteronomy: the eighth commandment, you shall not steal. And then the tenth commandment, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife, and you shall not desire your neighbor's house, his field, his male servant, his female servant, his ox, his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor. So, uh, coveting is wanting something to the point that you're willing to sin to get it. So, don't do that, and it's primarily directed to property um, of your neighbors. The, our larger catechism expands that on question 141 and asks, what are the duties required in the Eighth Commandment? And it says, the duties required in the Eighth Commandment are truth, faithfulness, and justice in contracts and commerce between men and men, rendering to everyone his due, Restitution of goods unlawfully detained from the right owners thereof, giving and lending freely according to our abilities and the necessities of others, moderation of our judgments, wills, and affections concerning worldly goods, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustentation. It's a good, strong word right there. You can now use in a sentence, sustentation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it, frugality, avoiding unnecessary lawsuits and suretyship or other like engagements, and an endeavor by all just and lawful means to procure, preserve, and further the wealth and outward state of others as well as our own. A beautiful thing about our larger catechism is that when they talk about the Ten Commandments, they always remind us that every commandment also implies a duty to others. Right? We're not just concerned that our stuff don't get stolen. We don't want other people's stuff to get stolen either, and, and so on. Other passages actually teach private ownership. All the passages about agricultural production, offerings, and, and tithes teach agricult, uh, 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 private ownership of land, of means, and so on. So I think it's clear that the scriptures teach that the idea of private ownership is a principle that should be furthered, that is preferred over state control, um, and is something that we should... Um, live out in our lives and, and, and seek to apply that to other people's lives in the public sphere by the way that uh, policies enact, by the way we vote, by the way we serve in the public area as well. Any questions? Because so far it's only been teaching. We're going to meddle a little bit with the idea of generosity. 
Because we all wants to we all want to own, but not everybody wants to give. And in the Bible, private ownership presupposes a generous spirit. We're going to do that in a moment. So any ta- any questions about the idea of private ownership, Alex? Um, it seems like that from these passages that once a family owns land, it's best practice to keep the land in the family from generation to generation. So the the the, the comment is that from these passages, it seems like it's best practice once a family owns land to keep the land in the family from generation to generation. Um, one thing you have to remember is that some of these are strictly relating to Israel's relation to the land, where they weren't allowed to sell across uh, tribal land. And they weren't even allowed to sell their land. They could lease, and the longest lease would be 50 years. So, uh, so we could extrapolate some principles that... Private ownership is something that we should, the concept at least, we should pass from generation to generation. The book of Proverbs talks about one generation always leaving an inheritance for the next generation. So that, that's there. I don't know that uh, strictly as far as owning land, if that's the, the, the idea that we need to get from this passage because of the close association of those case laws to Israel owning the promised land. Does it make sense? Okay. Any other questions? Nick. So you, you said that it's not biblical to own land and just let it sit. No, I th- I, I, I'll put that in the category of wisdom. Oh. But go ahead. Why? Why? I'm just, can you expand on that? Because hoarding is not something that we should do. Oh. Right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, Sonia, go ahead and ask your question so I can say I don't know. <laughs> Oh, you said something about taxes. Oh, yeah, property taxes. I'm just thinking about a situation that I ran into a while ago with an elderly lady that paid off her mortgage, but she could no longer afford the taxes, and the city foreclosed on her mm-hmm. because she couldn't afford the taxes that were going to be her paycheck. I don't think property taxes are against what the Bible teaches. Um, Taxes in general are not against what the Bible, the Bible presupposes the government's ability to pay taxes, to, to recollect taxes. Right? When Paul says, pay taxes to whom taxes is due, and so on. So, the concept of, as much as we don't like that, <laughs> the concept that the government has a right to tax is, is, is a sound concept. Now, that's abused often. So, again, we have to differentiate between how it's done and the thing itself, right? God commanded Israel to raise armies. Those armies have to be fed and paid for and so on. So the, the government has the right then to levy taxes to, to pay for those armies that God himself had commanded them to, to raise and so on, right? Uh, God commanded Nehemiah to build a, build, uh, to build a wall. That has to be done with money, from somewhere, God commanded Ezra to build a temple, and Solomon, and so on. So, uh, uh, you know, and, and in the description of, particularly the, Sol- the temple of Solomon, you see uh, a lot of taxation being done to build that, and Solomon is praised by that for that project. Does it make sense? So the concept, I think, is 
warranted in the scriptures, is often misapplied. Nobody should go into poverty because of taxation. That would be a contrary to, I think, the general teaching of the scriptures. Dina? That's also within the right of the government to do that because costs of things change. So, yeah. Any other questions? Nick? I've heard it argued that uh, government should not tax more than God asks for in tithe. Any comments on that idea? Uh, <laughs> I think the problem with that is that we misunderstand the amount of the tithe. In the Old Testament, the, 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 the offerings in tithe, the, the mandatory stuff that the people of Israel would have to give for religious purpose was upwards of 40%. So, if that's, you know, and so the government's doing pretty good there in that effort, so. Uh, but no, I don't, I don't see that connection, really. Any other, any other questions before we continue? All right, so. Private ownership is designed to bring glory to God because all of life is designed to bring God uh, glory to God. And we have to always keep in mind that God owns all things, ultimately, and we are stewards, we're managers of that property. Psalm 24 says that, that the earth is the Lord's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein, for he has founded it upon the seas and established upon the waters. So everything belongs to God, and we are managing the, those things for him. So all that is ours is to be used for his glory. Not for our own selfish use, but for God's glory. Private ownership must lead to generosity. Private ownership must lead to generosity. Uh, we have a bunch of passages in, Deut- in Deuteronomy about the poor. Like if, when you're, uh, Deuteronomy says that when you harvest your field, you're not to do it exhaustively, meaning you're not to take everything. You're supposed to leave things behind for the people who don't have fields to be able to come and also provide uh, for themselves. That's clearly illustrated in the book of Ruth, uh, where we find Boaz already practicing that, and then Boaz says, leave even a little extra for Ruth uh, and direct her for that corner where you're going to leave extra uh, for her, even more than the usual. Proverbs, talks, talking to God's covenant people, says, do not withhold good from those whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. And that's in the context of providing for Others, I think that's often used in the context of, of um, uh, the, the abortion fight. You know, the baby in the womb can't, doesn't have the power to do anything, and, and we should uh, advocate for, for them and so on, and that's true. But it's the, the, the primary context of this is actually providing for other people there as well. And Paul tells us that in Galatians 6, 6 through 10, let him who is taught the word share in all good things with him who teaches, do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, that he will also reap. For he who sows to his flesh will of the flesh reap corruption. But he who sows of the Spirit, to the Spirit, will of the Spirit reap everlasting life. And let us not grow weary while doing good. For in due season we shall reap 
if we do not lose heart. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us good to all, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So generosity is the goal of owning stuff. And the apostolic church exemplified that in Acts 4. It says this, Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands or houses sold them. And this, this is where knowing the original language is important. Because here is not one act. That they, it's not like they all got together at one point, sold everything, and put in the bank, the church bank. No. As the need arose, they weren't so attached to what they had that they would be against selling it to provide for other people. So as the need arose, they were selling things. This is an imperfect uh, tense there. Um, and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. And they distributed to each as one that had need. And Joseph, who was also named Barnabas by the apostle, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And some people look at this passage and see some sort of Christian socialism uh, being taught here, but it's not, because in the very next chapter, we read this. Paul is speaking to Ananias and Sapphira, and they say, uh, Peter, Peter speaking to Ananias and Sapphira, he says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? Is while the land remained, was that not yours? It's solely, completely yours. Not the churches, not the state. And after you sold it, was not it also under your control? Even after you sold it, the money was in your pocket, it was still yours. You didn't have to give. There was no compulsion, there was no mandate that you had to, to give. Why have you conceived these things in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. The problem was that Ananias lied about what he was giving. He said, I'm giving you everything when he wasn't giving everything. It wasn't that he kept some back necessarily. That was not the problem, but what he said about it. Does it make sense? So even Acts 4 is not teaching some sort of Christian communism. It's a willing attitude to not hold on to the things of this world so tightly that we are not helping others in the church that need our help. And the Apostle Paul taught that this was part of everyday Christian living. In 2 Corinthians 8, it says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened by, by inequality, that now at this time your abundance may supply their lack, that their abundance also may supply your lack, that there may be equality. And notice that equality in Paul's vocabulary is not everybody having the same, but everybody helping when the opportunity arises. He, he actually, this passage says that there'll be some that are richer than others in the church of Jesus Christ. And that's okay. No problem. But don't be either too proud to accept help from others. Because when 
you're in a better situation than they are, you too should help them. Or don't be so tight with your money that you don't help people who need help. And he quotes actually a Sabbath law to prove that. He says, as it is written, he who gathered much had nothing left over, and he who gathered little had no lack. And this is the law for the sixth day when they'll collect manna in the, during the wilderness uh, sojourn. And uh, you know, the one that decided, oh man, I'm really scared that I'm not going to have enough for tomorrow, will collect a whole bunch of manna at the end of the Sabbath, still not have more than the guy that's collected enough for the Sabbath. Uh, Larry Burkett, and some of old, us older ones might remember Larry Burkett. He was the original kind of uh, biblical uh, finances teaching, you know, perhaps way, a little, not a little, way more biblical than Dave Ramsey, which is more popular than he uh, now. But Larry Burkett said, without a surplus, little could be done in God's work. So obviously, some Christians must have an abundance. But when our attitudes become controlled by our possessions rather than by God's word, we're no longer useful to God. So what he says, based on 2 Corinthians 8, is good for Christians to have a lot of money, they, because then they can give a lot of it, and out of their abundance, finance a lot of good things in, uh, in the church of Jesus Christ. Any questions? About private ownership or about, or about the, the purpose of private ownership being generosity. All right, so next Lord's Day, then, we're going to cover chapter 5 of Trusting God, as we do at the end of each month. And then two weeks from today, we'll start a new series in Sunday School. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for um, your... Uh, direction to us. We thank you that your word, though not exhaustive, is comprehensive. It, it uh, talks about pretty much every area of living. Help us to be obedient to you, the teaching of your word. And even as we worship you this morning, we pray that uh, you will be guided by your word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.